Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. I'm so glad that you've decided to join us for worship this morning. I couldn't help uh, but smile and laugh a little bit. It was great. We started in the song, and um, contrary to popular belief, I don't always know what's going to happen in a service. So there are times when I know that something is supposed to happen, but don't really know when. So like when I looked up and I saw an army of children coming, I was like, oh, we're doing that now. <laughs> okay, great, here we go. And so we watched them, right, and we could all see them marching around, and all of you got to see them coming in, and they were smiling, and they're waving their branches, and even my son JJ, who I'm pretty sure was compelled to do that, he was under compulsion. You volunteered as tribute? He volunteered? Oh my goodness, it is a it is a day of days, right? Well, good job, buddy. And so I apologize for besmirching your character there at the beginning. Um, but you saw these kids, and everybody's smiling, and you all are smiling. I don't, what I don't know if you guys could, could sense, though, is the level of volume that was, right, Bree, that was coming from these kids while we were singing. It was loud enough that I could hear them over everything that was going on stage. And I think I was about midway through the first verse of that last song where I almost stopped us and said, hey, we're out, kids, just come up here and lead this song. So I just want you to know that that day is coming, that we'll start into a song, and if I hear that again, we are stopping what we are doing, and those children are coming up to lead us because that was the best thing I've heard this morning. There is nothing that I can say that is... That is going to be more impactful than hearing the children of our church sing the praises of God full throat and mostly on key, right? That's a win. Doing something right here at First Baptist Church, right? Well, anyways, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we turn our attention now to his word, shall we? Father God, we are so, so grateful to you for your goodness and grace. Lord, we are, we are grateful for this day as we come into the, this Holy Week, this week of Easter, moving towards Resurrection Sunday. God, we are grateful for all that it represents and all that we remember. And Lord, I, I do pray that we would remember that there is a, a, another side to this coin as we watch these children come and wave the branches. Lord, we love to remember those that, that declared, Hosanna, blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord. But Lord, we need to remember and be reminded that the same ones that waved branches declaring you Lord are the ones that just days later declared that they wanted your death. And Lord, oftentimes that conflict resides within us, your holy people. Both sinner and saint lives in each of us. And Lord, when we fail to focus on you and when we fail to submit ourselves to your lordship, your leadership, in your way and in your time, Lord, that we run the risk of turning to rebellion. And so, Lord, this morning as we come to your word, as we consider the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world, as we consider the spotless sacrifice Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears, that you would open our hearts and our minds. Lord, I pray that your sweet spirit would continue to move, Lord, and that we would have the same heart and mind that we saw in these children this morning who worshiped you without inhibition, Lord, who, who opened themselves to, to sharing and, and experiencing your grace. Lord, this morning, may we have the faith of a child. May we be aware of your presence and willing to follow your lead to hear your voice and respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as, as you all know, one of uh, my highlights of the summer as a pastor has always been, whether I was a youth pastor or a senior pastor, has been working with uh, the group called Mission Serve that does mission trips across the East Coast and moving towards the Midwest. Uh, but I've always enjoyed doing those trips with the teenagers and the adults that are a part of that. And one of our favorite locations to have done those trips when we were in West Virginia was the Cherokee uh, Reservation in Cherokee, North Carolina. I, we kind of backed our way into that. There, there was a, a series of years where whatever trip we were on, we agreed to come back to it next year. And the political figures would change in that, that area, and so they would have to cancel the trip and move us. Well, finally, we got in with this Cherokee, North Carolina trip, and we loved that trip. So for several years, we would go to Cherokee. And, and after you do a trip several times, you begin to know where you're going. 
You, we've all done that, right? There, there are certain places that when we get in the car, it's basically autopilot. We know how to get where we're going because we've gone there so many times. And for us, this trip to Cherokee was like that. We knew the routes. We knew the roads. The bus driver didn't even need to pay attention to the GPS. And so we got up early that morning and we made our way to the mountains of North Carolina to the Cherokee Indian Reservation. As we got close to, to our final turn, however, there was a sign that, that threw us off track. As we all know, we've seen those signs that there was a detour, right? The, the dreaded detour sign came up and redirected us from where we were supposed to go. So rather than being able to take that right turn, that final right turn that would take us up and around the mountain and drop us right off at the school where we were staying, we had to redirect. And again, I don't always know what's going on, but I knew in that moment that this was not good. And I am a creature of habit, so I was so frustrated. How could we not have been prepared for this? Why did the GPS not tell us that there was a detour on this road? I didn't have time to prepare, so I was, I was all kinds of stressed out. Because if you have ever been on a bus with 35 teenagers for 12 hours, once you get past about hour three, you're on borrowed time. So once you hit hour 12, the explosion has already happened. The chaos has ensued, and it is time to get everybody off the bus or someone is going to die as tribute. Right? We were at that point, and we were to the last turn, right turn up around the mountain. We were there. Detour. So we had to go straight. So me and the bus driver, we begin talking. Well, what are we going to do? We don't know where this goes. We don't know how. Before we could even finish our conversation about what was going to happen, we realized that we knew where we were. And we looked, and there was a sign that said, welcome, mission serve, turn left. And we looked to our left, and what do we see? But the school where we were staying. It was a quarter of a mile. Apparently, our bus driver, who liked to drive mo motorcycles, had put motorcycle scenic route into his GPS. So this whole time, we'd been driving an extra 10-mile loop up and around the mountains to the backside to get where we were going. The detour actually put us on the most direct route to where we needed to go. Have you ever had that happen? And I don't just mean as you're driving. I, certainly we've had that happen. We, I know we've had detours that have sent us off. But, but inevitably in life we have these moments, whether it's on the road or in relationships or in plans and procedures, where something comes up and throws what we think is a wrench into the works of our plans. It's messed everything up. But as we go along, we get to the end and we realize that, wow, that was actually much better. That was more effective. That was more efficient. Maybe that should have been the plan the whole time. Now, it probably wasn't without pain or consternation, but it got you there. You know, as I, I look at the scriptures, and I, I consider the way things happen oftentimes with God's plans and our plans, the, the passage from, I believe it's Isaiah, that where, where it tells us that God's plans are not our plans and God's ways are not our ways because the mind of God is so much higher than our minds. That is so true, but don't we forget that? And, and, and we get caught up in cultural winds of change and the way things that are happening and, and struggles and detours and insert whatever inconvenience you want to and we're like, oh no, what are we going to do? How is the plan going to come to fruition when everything has been messed up? There's no hope. And so often we see that in the Bible, we see these moments where it seems like this incredible detour, the devil has thrown this uh, unfixable wrench into the works, and then we get to the end and we're like, oh, that's exactly what needed to happen. I actually can't think of another way that that plan could have happened better than what the Lord put together. I think we see that in the scriptures over and over again, and I particularly think that is true in the story of Jesus. The story of the crucifixion, none of us would have picked that method and that means and that path to accomplish the plans of God if it were up to us. I mean, even now for us to consider the reality of what our Savior suffered for us, we, ha we often ask the question, I'm often asked the question, was, was there not another way? Was there not a better way? A more honorable way? And, you know, I think about how this plays out 
And I think about the detours that the, the religious leaders and the political leaders of the day put in the way of Jesus. They did all that they could to silence this talk of Jesus as Messiah. They put all of these roadblocks in the way. And in the ultimate twist, all of their rebel rousing and political maneuvering only served to certify Jesus as the spotless Lamb of God and to send him on his way to serve as a sacrifice for the sins of the world and set him up to arise as the Messiah and Savior of the world. I want to look at an interaction that takes place shortly after the events of Palm Sunday, shortly after the, the reality of this this triumphal entry, right? We've got this triumphal entry where everyone's celebrating that blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord and, and Jesus immediately gets into the temple and, and rather than celebrating with the religious leaders and elevating them, he fights them. And he very quickly, they, they turn on him and they bend trying to, to, to finagle and put things in place to silence him and trying to kill him and he gives them the opportunity that he needs and we see Jesus arrested in John chapter 18, and quickly we see him before the highest ruler in the area. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. John 18, starting in verse 28. It says this. Then the leaders, the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. Now, by now it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Was that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priest handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate said. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is te to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. So we see this, this struggle, this very, not very religious situation playing out. With these religious leaders. And, and if we think of this in, in the terms of like a game of chess. It seems as if the, the religious leaders of the day have, have checkmate. They have won the battle. They have taken Jesus before Caiaphas, the high priest, and, and on trumped up charges have moved him on and sent him on to Pilate. Now Jesus is in front of the governor of the region. He is the second highest ruling authority in that, that broader region, but because of some realities politically that were going on at the time, we actually know that Pilate at the moment was top dog. It didn't go any higher than Pilate in that region. And so Jesus is now before the Roman authorities, and specifically they are doing that because they didn't want to stone him to death. They wanted to crucify him. They wanted to make an example of him, and they think they've got it done. They, they think that they have finished 
the work, and they think that, that they, in their religious system, that they have protected it by taking Jesus before this political system with which they had a partnership, and they think they have won the day, that the detours are set in place, that the wheels of Jesus' forward momentum will now be stopped. They think that they have won the battle. And it would be easy for us to put ourselves in the position of the disciples, and, and we know because there are testimonials throughout the Gospels where they themselves think we've lost. There is no hope. The battle is over. The world is so wicked, and these wicked, corrupt religious leaders, and these wicked, corrupt political leaders, the world is terrible. It is going to hell in a handbasket. There is no hope. What can we do? We have lost. But brothers and sisters, may I give you the message and the truth that we see in the story of Jesus. May, may, I, may I give you a spoiler alert, if you will, based on what we said last week. We need to understand this. No system of this world can stand in the way or the place of the Savior. No system of this world can stand in the way or the place of the Savior. Jesus is unstoppable. The God who created the world and the universe and set it to spinning and put it in order. Do you think that we ants of people can stop his purposes? We can't. We see here. That the religious leaders attempted to use the political system of their day to silence Jesus. The religious leaders. Now, in my notes, religious leaders is capitalized. And I realized that in the transmission that it was probably made lowercase because I normally capitalize and underline the, the, the words. I want you to underline, if you look in your notes, I want you to underline religious leaders because we need to know who the bad guys really were in this story. It was the people of faith. It was the people who were waiting for the Messiah. It was the people who, who should have been the ones, it was the very ones who had celebrated him just days earlier, it, to, to some degree. Those same people have now shifted and are like, well, you ain't going to do it our way, then we're going to do it our own way. And these religious leaders attempted to use the political systems of their day to silence Jesus. Now we need to understand some things about the, the, the region and the history and the area for this time. In the Roman Empire, peaceful regions were placed under the leadership of the Senate. And they were allowed a measure of self-rule. They, they were given representation in the Senate and they were able to do basically what they wanted within reason so long as they paid homage to and they recognized the su supremacy of the Roman Emperor and maintained the Pax Rom Romana. The peace of Rome was the greatest god of the day, if we're being honest. Now we see here that, that, that Palestine... That Judea, Israel, is not one of these peaceful regions. Rebellious and unruly regions were placed under the authority of a procurator or a governor. And they were given an occupying force of Roman soldiers who were to help keep the peace in the area through any means necessary. Now we look back and we look at Pilate. And there are conflicting opinions about how effective Pilate was as a governor. But the fact of the matter is this. That we know from extra biblical records that Pilate had a good long run as the governor. He served for a very long time. Which seems to indicate that though he was universally hated, everybody hated Pilate. No one trusted Pilate. Pilate was power hungry, and Pilate would sooner smack you than look at you. We have historical record that tells us this. He was an incredibly violent and corrupt man, but he got his job done. He did what he needed to do. He served for a long time, so we know that his violent and intimidating tactics were relatively successful. And as governor, what we don't often know, though, is this. That because of the reality of, of the rebellious nature of the people of Israel, because they were constantly having to put down insurrections in the region, that Pilate had the ability to pick their political leaders. 
as the governor of the region, Pilate had the, the right to put people into power and take people out of power, including the high priest. Pilate did this because he had all of the vestments, all of the things needed for worship were locked away in his fortress. So Pilate got to pick the high priest. That's something that we often don't see in the story as we read through it. Now, we also know something as well, and it's something that's jumped out at me many times. Caiaphas and his family, as the high priest, maintained power for a long time. And, and actually, if you look back in Leviticus, and you look at Deuteronomy, and you look at the laws that dictate how long a high priest was supposed to serve, and how the order of, of succession was supposed to happen, it doesn't line up. They're not following the rules that God set forth. You know why? Because Rome is pulling the strings. And Caiaphas and his family maintained power for the entirety of the reign of Pilate. Now, we have to ask the question, why? Why is it that Caiaphas appears and his family appears in power for so long throughout the rule of Pilate? Why is it that it's only after the removal of Pilate as the governor of the region that we see a new high priest put into place? Well, the truth is this. While Pilate was no friend to the Jews, historical record demonstrates that there was a good deal of cooperation and collaboration behind closed doors between Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and Pilate. It may have been mostly through backroom dealings and quiet, under-the-table agreements to keep up appearances, but the fact is that they were working hand-in-glove. They were calling in favors back and forth. And the religious leaders, as we look in this text, and we see that they have sent Jesus up to Pilate, and Caiaphas has not gone with them, there's a reason for that, because Caiaphas has every belief every reason to believe that, that Pilate is going to scratch his back just as he scratched his. So this is a done deal. That he's going to send him to Pilate, and it doesn't really matter what the charges are. Remember, Pilate was an incredibly violent man. He didn't need a reason to make an example of somebody. Someone was, was stirring things up and throwing things around in the table. That's a guy you want to put down. So Caiaphas has every reason to believe game is over. We, we've already worked the political system. We've got the agreement. We are, we are, as they say, in bed together. I'm sending him to you, Pilate. If I've sent him to you, then, then this should be a done deal. Tells us that it's early in the morning when they bring Jesus to Pilate. They have every intention of dropping Jesus of him off and leaving him to his death and moving on with their religious festivities. We know that it's the time of Passover, right? That it is one of the most high holy times of the year for Jews. And they are going to celebrate God's wrath passing over them through the blood of the Lamb. They have this, this festival that's going to happen for several days. This incredible party that's going to happen. And they need to take care of this little bit of business so it doesn't ruin their party. And they need to take care of this business in a way that allows them to maintain appearances. So they bring him to Pilate early in the morning when hopefully no one's going to see what's going on, going on, hoping to get it done and get on with their celebration. What's the charge against Jesus? Well, it's sedition and rebellion, which is exactly what the region was known for. They accused Jesus of being a criminal, not according to Jewish law, but according to Roman law. If we look in other texts, we know that they say, hey, he speaks against the Roman government. He doesn't pay his taxes, right? We know government's going to get their money. And Jesus is telling people, hey, you don't got to pay taxes is what they're saying, which we know is actually categorically false. Jesus says, hey, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But they, the charges are that Jesus claims to be a king. He's undermining Roman rule and law. He's bringing people to himself and is going to seek to unseat the Roman rulers. Which is incredibly funny if we think about it. Because is that not exactly what they wanted? 
Is that not exactly what they themselves were looking for and expected the king of the Jews, the Messiah, to do? That they thought that this Messiah was going to come in swinging the sword and take down all oppressive governments and elevate them to this, this high position. And it was because Jesus, it was precisely because Jesus didn't do what they are accusing him of that they accused him of it. We see in verses 31 through 32, there is a conversation that happens in political speak. Pilate says, take him now yourselves and judge him by your own law. They say, but we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. The fact is that the religious leaders had already judged Jesus and had already determined that he was guilty according to their law. And truthfully, they had judged him long before they had ever brought him into a courtroom. Truthfully, they had already decided him worthy of death long before he stood before them. And here's, here's the, the reality. They could and often did execute people. I mean, we, we just have to flip a few pages over, right? And we see Stephen being stoned. We know that earlier on, they tried to stone Jesus. We, we know through, through historical records that there were many ways that they were, in fact, allowed to kill people and force certain things. But you know what they couldn't do? They couldn't make an example of someone. They could not crucify anyone. That power rested alone in the hands of the Romans. So all of this conversation, as it says in the text, is pointing to the fact that they want him crucified. They want to make sure that what they are dealing with and what they are fighting, that no one ever gets in their way the way Jesus did. They want to send a message to anyone that would seek to upset their apple cart, their power, their position, their prominence, anyone that would put a detour in their way to getting what they want in the way that they want to get it. They want to send a message to them that this is what we do to people like you. They want to make an example. They're asking Pilate to do them a favor. They're asking Pilate to do their dirty work to protect the perception of their purity and their power. But it's not just the, the religious leaders of the day utilizing the political systems of their day to silence Jesus. It's not just them looking to the political system to be their savior to stop what they see as a vile betrayal and, and, and dirtying of the faith. But they use their own system. And the fact is that they love their system. And the religious leaders love their own religious system so much that they not only missed the coming of their Messiah, but used that very system which was meant to reveal him to murder him. They missed the proverbial forest for the trees. There's something in this that, that just struck me as funny in a dark way. Do you notice what happens pretty early on? Here we have these religious leaders, right, that, that have, have brought trumped-up charges, that they've, they've found false witnesses to give testimony against Jesus. They, they've, got, they've gone dirty in every possible way they can. But they, they draw a line. <laughs> they come to the door of Pilate's house and they're like, oh, we can't go in there. Sorry, Pilate, you're going to have to come out to us. Why? Because it would have made them ceremonially unclean. The religious leaders took great care to observe the ceremonial law. And according to the law, if you entered the house of a Gentile or someone who was unclean, you too became unclean and had to go through a process of purification. Well, heaven forbid that they should unpurify themselves and that they should look guilty and dirty in the eyes of the world. These religiously upright leaders who are working so hard to protect their purity, have brought Jesus to Pilate under false pretenses and charges, which they themselves created to facilitate his unjust death. And I think it's easy for us to look at this and to throw stones and say, oh, that is terrible. That is, that is so hypocritical. How dare they do that? To be incensed in our heart that these religious people, these people that are supposed to be spiritual and holy, these people that are supposed to be pointing everyone to God, it's easy for us to become incensed and say, how dare they? How dare they? 
They protected and maintained the public appearances of purity required, all the while running roughshod over the moral law of God, violating several of the Ten Commandments in the process. <laughs> They're concerned about the ceremonial law, which is what everyone sees, right? It's hoops that you jump through to maintain the, the perception of holiness, all the while jumping, just running roughshod and ignoring completely the laws that were meant to make sure that we live in relationship with one another in God in holiness. And they did all of this to control and silence one man. And what did he do? What did Jesus do to earn this? Well, he called them on their sin. And he had integrity to live in the truth that they claimed. Listen to me. Please don't miss this today. Don't say, well, that's not us. That's them. We're not those kind of religious leaders. I think we run the risk of falling into the same trap. Often the greatest threats to the faith and to the faithful come not from external forces, but from those of us inside our own tent. It comes from our own hearts. It comes from our own efforts to protect that which is God's to protect. And rather than faithfully living out what God has called us to and living the pure life, the holy life to which God has called us as best we can and trusting him to protect his church, trusting, trusting him to make sure things come out the way they need to come out, we try to manipulate them. We make partnerships with the system and we look to the world and we say, if we have to have this political leader because if this political leader comes in, the church is done. The church can't do this. If that person becomes president, what are we going to do? But if this person becomes president, everything will be right with the world. We can't have that senator because if that senator does this, they'll make this law. And that law will stop us. And we got to make this law because if we don't stop this group of people, they're going to undo all of these things that God has done. They're going to run roughshod over God's word. And so as we do, we begin making our compromises as well. And we begin putting ourselves in positions just like the Jewish leaders of the day where we are partnering ourselves and aligning ourselves with political entities, political parties, and political powers in order to protect that which isn't ours to protect. Listen, there's a battle to be fought, but it is not against powers of this world. God, I don't, know if I, I don't know if you knew this, but I've read the book, and if you look, we win. Right? We don't lose. There's no reason to be afraid of some antichrist. The whole point of God pointing out the antichrist is so that we can be aware of, the, of who it is and how they function. Not who it is, but how they function so that we don't become antichrist. So that we don't, we don't get duped into following it and doing the same things that they do. But there's nothing in the Bible that says we're supposed to be afraid of the Antichrist. We're not. You know why? Because we have Christ. And Christ wins. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that the God of the universe is greater than anything that we face? Because we preach that and we sing that, but then we hide in the corner and say, Oh my gosh, this person won. What are we going to do? And then we compromise ourselves. Brothers, we, sisters, we can't do this. There is no system, there is no power in this world, on, in heaven or on earth, that can stand in the way of the purposes of God. And they may throw these little detours out there, and they may think they've won. But here's the thing, even in this case, the very detour, tales, detours that the world threw in Jesus' way were the, actually the things that pushed him in the direction he needed to go to do that which he came here to do. Those who refuse to learn from the past are destined to repeat it. Understand something with me today. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters. In our religious paradigm today, we are the Sadducees. We are the Pharisees. We are the priests. We are the Sanhedrin. Now, we want to paint them with a wicked brush, and I get that they did things that they shouldn't have done. I understand that. But we are the people that control the religious system and establishment. That isn't necessarily a bad thing. What makes it bad is when we refuse to do the right thing and be correct in how we utilize that position which God has placed us in. 
We are the gatekeepers of faith and practice. Too often we fall into the trap of believing again, like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, that the key to our survival and the propagation of our faith is found in political power and control of the systems of this world. But the power of this world is not the way of Jesus. And it often does more to pollute us than to protect us. We must take care that our systems of belief, our political systems of practice, don't distract us from or serve as a means to control the Savior. That's the reality of what the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Sanhedrin were trying to do, wasn't it? They wanted Jesus to move and work. They would have been fine with Jesus being popular and Jesus having a great following if he would have played their game. If he would have done their thing in their way, they probably would have gone along with him. But he didn't. It wasn't Jesus that deviated from the plan. It was them and brothers and sisters. I worry that at times we get off script with what God has called us to. We become collaborators and co-conspirators. Rather than maintaining our purity, we maintain perception of purity. But again, the plans and purposes of Jesus cannot be stopped. And they need no assistance from those who play political and religious games. It is but ours to trust, obey, and watch as God works. Because again, what was meant to stop the Savior actually served to facilitate his work. Verse 32. The only way that Jesus could be crucified was by conviction by a Roman court. And Jesus himself had prophesied that he would die on a cross. Had they listened to Jesus, they would have understood that they weren't throwing a roadblock in. They were fast-tracking him to the plan. They were putting him on the most direct route to what he had said he had come to do. And Jesus, as he continues to work or move through this system uses the system to his own advantage. Now, this is something that we need to understand because there's a difference in what we see happen in Jesus' life in the court of law here and what happens in the American court of law. Finish this sentence. You have the right to, say it, you have the right to remain silent, right? These are, this is the beginning of our Miranda rights. In our legal system, innocence is assumed and guilt must be proven, right? Innocence is assumed and guilt must be proven. Silence then, this is why they tell you you have the right to remain silent. Silence is a means of protecting assumed innocence. It often works in the best interest of the defensive strategy To shut your mouth. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. I had a lawyer friend who I was talking to one time about a a problem, legal problem that I had. I'd gotten a ticket. And I was like, hey, man, could you help me get out of this? He says, it depends. What have you said? And I said, I didn't say anything. He said, listen. If you keep your mouth shut, they can have you dead to rights on video three times over and I can get you out of it. Stay silent. Say nothing. The reality of our court sometimes. We don't just have the Miranda rights, though. We also have the Fifth Amendment, right? Fifth Amendment gives us to remain silent on the stand even, even while being asked questions under oath, in order to avoid providing self-incriminating testimony. As they say... Silence is golden. But here's the truth. None of this was true in a Roman court of law. In a Roman court of law, the paradigm was flipped. In a Roman court of law, once the accusation was made, it was assumed that you were guilty. And it was the job of the defense to prove innocence. Silence then wasn't a way of protecting assumed innocence. Silence was seen as a way of admitting guilt. Which is really interesting when we think about Jesus, isn't it? 
Because here we have Jesus placed before Pilate. And Pilate gives Jesus the opportunity to present his defense. His question, Pilate's questions even assume the assumption of an answer from Jesus to the negative, meaning I didn't do it. Pilate knows the charges are trumped up and is giving a Jesus an out. Let's look at verses 33 and following again. It says, Pilate went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds in the most Jesus-y of ways. Is that your own idea? Or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. Which consequently, can we give Peter a pass here? Like, he tried. But now my kingdom is from another place. So you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate gives Jesus multiple opportunities to defend himself. And in true Jesus fashion, he answers Pilate's question with a question. Can you imagine that? Being in a court of law, hey, did, did you do this? Do you think I did this? Hey, I'm asking you, like, did, did, has someone told? Like, what have people told you? What have you heard? The questions, and Jesus' questions only serve to offend Pilate. It's like Jesus is trying to get a guilty verdict. But again, his questions, Pilate's questions continue to assume the negative. I know this isn't true of you. Just tell me it's not true. Just tell me it's not true. And the truth is that the, the information that Jesus does provide serves to prove and confirm more than it does to deny accusations. The fact is that what was meant to stop the Savior served to facilitate his work, and Jesus knew that full well. And Jesus, of his own volition, cho chose to go to the cross. And other passages, if we read parallel passages to this, they don't, the, the, the gospel writers don't even feel it's necessary to say anything about the exchange because Jesus doesn't do anything to defend Jesus essentially maintains silence. Jesus, of his own volition and will, assumes guilt, though innocent. Jesus died, though innocent, so that we could live, though guilty. Jesus' silence allowed others to assume his guilty, his, his guiltiness, so that we could be made innocent through his shed blood again even a corrupt power hungry politician like Pilate could see that Jesus was innocent and we see that Pilate triples down on the innocence of Jesus what do I always tell you repetition means remember and Pilate on three different occasions goes back to the Jews and says this man is innocent I see no reason for charges against this man Pilate in verse 38 comes back and makes them a, an offer in 38 39. They can't refuse. He says, hey, look, I find no basis for charges against him. But it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Surely they wouldn't condemn an innocent man for a known dangerous criminal who was dangerous to them. He was a zealot. Now we like to think of zealots as being dangerous to the Roman leaders, and they were. But you know who they were more dangerous to? The Jewish leaders who were partnering with the political establishment. They were known to come up behind people. That's why Zacchaeus is hiding in a tree as a collaborator. Because in a crowd, they come up behind you with a little knife and pop, pop, pop. These Jewish leaders, they want him gone because, like, Jesus is, a, is, is an irritant. But Barabbas would kill them as soon as look at them. So what does Pilate do? Well, we're going to jump ahead outside of our passage. In, in chapter 19, we see that Pilate has Jesus flogged. And once more, he comes out to them and says, look, I, I'm bringing him out to you. 
to let you know that I find no basis of charge against him. Now, we might look at this and we say, well, then why did he punish him? If he knew he was innocent, why did Pilate have him flogged? Well, you know what historians believe and theologians believe? That Pilate actually had Jesus flogged as a means of mercy. That Pilate's hope was that by flogging Jesus and bringing out this innocent man who had been beaten nigh unto death and showing the religious leaders what was going to happen to this innocent man, that they would say, you know what, we, we have no taste for blood. We can't do this. We're out. But even at that, they want him killed. There was no way to make this crowd act rationally. In verse 6 again, they say, here's the man. And the officials, they, they start getting all the people to yell, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered them, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Finally, Pilate relents and gives the people what they want. But only under coercion in verse 16, you can read that later, and under the threat of his own potential trial and punishment for failing to support Caesar. There's a, a, a subtle theme playing out here that's easy to miss that jumped out to me as I was studying this passage this week. Through Pilate's actions, this violent and sinful man, through his consistent declaration, I find no charge against this man. I find no basis for charge against this man. I find no basis for charge against this man. Pilate actually plays a priestly role. And what Pilate is doing is akin to what happened with Jesus when he was born, when the shepherds, these priestly shepherds came and and find Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes so that, that he couldn't harm himself. That's what they did with sheep, right? Is they would wrap them to keep them without blemish, to inspect them. And Pilate inspects Jesus and he says, this is a spotless lamb. There is no guilt in him. And here this sinful, sinful, violent man plays a role of priest and assures that the lamb is indeed without blemish or spot before handing him over to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. And Jesus, though innocent, takes the place of the guilty. Jesus died in the place of another. Did you know that there are actually two Jesuses in this story? There is Jesus the Christ, and there is Jesus Barabbas. That was his name. Jesus the king, and ironically, Barabbas means son of the father. Jesus the Christ, and Jesus the son of the father. And they may have shared the same name, but they were polar opposites in both action and attitude. Got to wonder how Barabbas felt as he stood there knowing his guilt and knowing full well the innocence of Jesus because Pilate had declared it. Was Barabbas grateful? Was Jesus Barabbas grateful that he got away with it knowing that he was guilty as sin but got to walk away as if innocent while this innocent man would die as if guilty? But is it not the most appropriate picture for what Jesus did for us? Even in the original crucifixion, here we have the innocent son of God, the, the king of the universe, and he dies so that this man can live as the son of the father. And you and I are in the same boat. We are guilty just as Barabbas is. We can find ourselves, everybody had abandoned Jesus, and no matter how we see ourselves in the crucifixion, we, we have to see ourselves as one of guilt. And Christ died for all the guilty, not just Barabbas, but all that we might be sons and daughters of the Father. Barabbas wasn't the only sinner for whom the spotless lamb was slain that day. Brothers and sisters, salvation comes through one name and one name alone, and that is the name of Jesus. There is salvation in no other name. 
And we may seek respite and assistance from other worldly powers, but they will fail us. They will turn on us. We may seek to, to, to elevate ourselves in position and power, but we will ultimately, by doing so, pollute ourselves if we are not careful. We need to look to the cross we need to look to Christ crucified, risen and coming again, and understand that it is only through fixing our eyes on him and following the way of Jesus that we are able to present salvation to a world in need. To, we can only live as children of the Father as we look at the true child of the Father, Jesus the Christ. He sacrificed himself, though innocent, for us that though guilty we might live as innocent. It's easy for us to look at the ways of the world and see the wickedness and see the ways that everything is skewed and, and spinning out of control this way and that way. And it's easy for us to try to find anything we can hold on to that can give us some kind of a firm footing. But the only foundation that we can trust, the only way that we can find ourselves on sure and solid ground is by turning to Jesus. By trusting in his shed blood and his sacrifice. And it may not make sense to us in the way of this world. But are we trying to keep the world happy? Or are we trying to align ourselves with the Father? This week we celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus. And we recognize the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world for our sins. Because the Christ that was convicted was led to a cross and crucified. But again, may I take you to the end of the story? He didn't stay dead. But the roadblock of a rock on the face of a grave could not keep him down. And the king arises, and the king is coming, and he will return in glory and splendor, bringing salvation with him through the power of his right hand. May we rest in that salvation as we accept his shed blood for our sins and the sins of the world. Father God, I thank you for your great love and your great sacrifice through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to turn to you today, to remember your sacrifice, to recognize that though innocent, you died for the guilty, and that though we were guilty, you have made us innocent and clean through your shed blood. God, give us hope today. Give us the hope of salvation that comes through Christ and Christ alone. May we rest in your care. May we trust in your power. May we know that your purposes are eternal and cannot be stopped by any power in this world. God, we rest in your hands. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name.